Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. Amen. We're kicking off a new series called The Dreams of Christmas. And it's, it's not about our dreams for Christmas. It's not about, hey, I wish I would get this, or I'm really excited that this family's coming, or really excited this family's not coming, however your Christmas works, or I'm really excited that we're eating this, whatever that looks like. It's about the dreams that we find in Scripture surrounding the Christmas story, in particular, the dreams of Joseph. Because if you've spent any time at all with the Christmas story, you understand that there's certain dreams that God gives Joseph. Angel shows up. He gets direction from these dreams. And having grown up in the church and having grown up read, reading the Christmas story, I always put a certain amount of pressure on my dreams. I always wondered what God was speaking to me. Anytime I had a dream, what, God, what are you saying? What are you trying to say by this? And if you're like me, most of your dreams are just crazy. <laughs> Let's be honest, you know, at a certain point, you know, in your dream, maybe you're fleeing somebody, but then all of a sudden you can fly, which is super cool, and then there's this like 50-foot burrito with laser eyes, and it's like shooting at you, and you're trying to get away, and then you wake up, and you're like, God, what are you trying to tell me? Right? Don't eat a Chipotle? Is that what you're saying? We have crazy dreams that don't tend to make a lot of sense, but every once in a while, we have significant dreams. Several months ago, a good friend of mine lost something very important to him. He couldn't find it, searched and searched and searched. And then early one morning, I had this dream, this very specific, quick dream that was about this lost something and exactly where it was. And when I woke up, I was a little bit hesitant in telling my wife, but yeah, I had this dream and, and, and this is where this thing is and I don't wanna really say anything because I'm afraid that it's not true. And she's like, oh, you have to say something. And I'm like, no, we don't. And she did. Um, <laughs> she, she called him and, and this lost item was exactly where my dream said it would be, which was interesting. And, and so my friend responded to me from Acts 2.17 that says young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. <laughs> Yeah, so I said, I have a vision coming to me. You're gonna get punched next time I see you. But sometimes we have crazy dreams and sometimes we have significant dreams and God still uses dreams to communicate. And as we look at this story in scripture this morning, we're really looking at what is the heart of God in this dream? What do we find out about God from the dreams of Joseph? And so we're gonna look at the first dream this morning. It's gonna be in Matthew chapter one. So if you have your Bibles... You can turn there. If you want to grab one from the pew, it's on page 1515. We don't really know much about Joseph. Most of what we know about Joseph comes from the Christmas story. We know that, that he's a good man, that he's righteous and kind and sensitive. We get one more glimpse of Joseph. Jesus is 12 years old, and the whole family goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And then when they're leaving, we probably have the greatest parental panic moment in the history of the world. Because as they're returning from Jerusalem, they find out that Jesus isn't with them. They lost Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you just see them like we had one job? <laughs> don't lose God's son. Whatever you do, don't lose the son of God. Now we can't find him. What's going to happen to us? I just cannot imagine this moment of panic. But then honestly, that's it. We know Joseph's a carpenter because in Matthew 13, it says that as people are scoffing at Jesus, they reference carpenter's son. But somewhere between this 12-year-old episode and in John chapter 19, we have Jesus entrusting Mary to John 
Somewhere between then, something happens to Joseph. We don't know what it is. We don't know if he got sick. We don't know if it was an accident. I've often wondered, you know, did, did Jesus not intervene in a situation that he could have? I don't know what that looked like. But what we do have is entirely dependent upon his response to this first dream. What we have written about Joseph is because of his righteousness, his faith, his trust, and his obedience. So let's look at Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiance, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Joseph and Mary were engaged, a far more serious commitment in that culture than in most current cultures. This would have been something where the families would have gotten together, a priest would be brought in, and they would sign a legal document. This was a legally binding engagement, and significant gifts would be given. First, the bride price. The groom's family would give the bride and her family a certain amount of money. Now, this was two things. One, it was to seal the covenant, this marriage covenant, and secondly, it was so that if something happened to the husband, to the groom, she would have a little bit of money left. And then the bride's family would give what's called the dowry. They would give a gift to the family so that they could be set up for success. They would give land and livestock and uh, dish towels and a waffle iron and a riding lawnmower and all those things that you need so that your family can be set up for success. And then oftentimes the groom would even give the bride a significant gift to seal this engagement. At this point, they were called husband and wife. And the only way to break this Engagement was a divorce, was this formal proceeding where people would be gathered around. Now, at this point in the story, Mary's probably four months pregnant. She spent three months with her relative Elizabeth, and she's come back, and she meets with Joseph. And there's this moment, and we don't have it. I, I wish Scripture gave us more details on this moment, but there's this moment where Mary comes to talk to Joseph to tell him that she's pregnant. Now, I don't know how that went. Can you imagine? You know, she's probably starting to show, and, and maybe Joseph notices the weight gain, but he's a good husband. He's not going to say a word. <laughs> but she says, Joseph, I'm pregnant. And he goes, and she goes, but don't worry. It's by the Holy Spirit. And he goes, what? Because there, there's no historical precedent for this conversation. There's nothing in which, in which Mary can say, well, you know how that happens. You know, you can read the story about so-and-so who got pregnant by the Holy Spirit and the kid they had. No, this is it. This is a one-and-done moment in history. And so she says this, and Joseph has to be saying something like, just tell me the truth. What really happened? And is Mary hurt that, that he doesn't believe? And, and does Joseph want to believe, but he can't bring himself to believe because it's just too far out of what his mind can grasp? Because obviously this was a serious problem. Infidelity during an engagement was considered adultery, and adultery was punishable by death. The Old Testament law says that. Now, in the New Testament time, there probably wasn't a lot of stoning that was going on for this, uh, this transgression, but it was a serious deal. It wasn't just that Joseph's feelings were hurt. What was really going on was, see, divorce was not optional for Joseph, it was mandatory. 
Because adultery was impurity, and if he would have taken Mary as his wife, then he would be unclean. And unclean for a Jewish man meant you, you couldn't worship at the temple. There were certain things you couldn't do in society. And so this is what was before him. The law said you needed to divorce. And so on one side, he's got the law, what he lives by, what he follows. But then on the other side, he has Mary that he loves. And so he is this great balance between obedience to the law and compassion for Mary. He's not solely legalistic. And so he decides to divorce her quietly, which still would have involved witnesses coming along. Which is amazing, honestly. Because he doesn't have the story that we're coming to at this point. All he knows is that she's pregnant. And he could have chosen to to punish her, to call her out, because certainly he would have felt cheated or taken advantage of or inadequate. And he could have gotten the focus off of himself and onto her, but he didn't. He wanted to do it quietly. And into this drama, into this story, steps an angel that says, Joseph, your wife is right. Which I kind of thought more of the wives would say amen (laughs) to that part of the story, but I understand. I understand. Verse 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph is told, do not be afraid. You see, angels, when they show up, almost always have to say, do not be afraid, because humans' knees get weak around angels. But that's not what this is about. It's more about the consequences in Joseph's life for staying faithful to Mary. It's more about the stigma he will carry. It's more about the the whispers, the rumors, the shots to his reputation. Do not be afraid. Not to mention what it means that the child growing inside of Mary is the son of God. And what's it gonna be like for Joseph to father the father's son? I mean, there had to be this moment of what? Really? And not just at that moment, it had to be this daily dawning comprehension of what it looks like to parent the son of God. I mean, is this child gonna be perfect? He's gonna wreck the curve for the rest of the kids. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother? Why can't you be more like Jesus? What does it look like? Will I ever have to correct him? Will I ever have to discipline him? Will I ever have to teach him anything? Can you imagine sitting down and being like, hey, in Genesis 1, here's how you created the world. (laughs) Or the first time that Jesus is running and falls and scrapes a knee and, and Joseph runs over and he's trying to make it better. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Let's just pray to you. Right? I mean, this is a huge deal. The God he prays to is working in his shop. Does he call him son? Does he call him savior? It's a big deal. And into this, an angel comes and says, do not be afraid. I I know your heart hurts. I I know this isn't what you planned. I mean, Joseph, 
I just get this picture that he was just like, all right, yes, I got the family business and I found somebody that I love and we're gonna settle down and we're gonna raise a family and then boom, history changes on my watch. Do not be afraid. I know, I know it's a reputation thing. You're, people are gonna whisper, people are gonna talk. People are gonna think you're the one that committed adultery because you're staying with her. Do not be afraid. Your whole world is turned upside down. Do not be afraid. Why? Because God is in it. God is with you and God is for you. You see, his name would be Jesus, which means the Lord saves. And he says, because he will save the people from their sins. Because God knew the biggest thing we needed saving from was was not a government. It wasn't the Romans for them. It wasn't some kind of uh, political agenda. It was sin. But his name would also be Emmanuel, which is from Isaiah 7. And it means God with us. Jesus is what he does. Emmanuel indicates who he is. And when we said, what is the heart of God in this dream? The heart of God is do not be afraid. I am with you. It's a theme that we find again and again in scripture. As a matter of fact, it's one of the principal themes in the Bible. Do not be afraid. I am with you. You see, God's not just saying, do not be afraid, as this is some platitude he can just throw out. Yep, figure it out on your own. Don't be afraid. You know, stick with it. He's saying, do not be afraid. Why? Because I am with you. In Genesis chapter 26, God says to Isaac, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Isaiah 41, do not be afraid for I am with you. Isaiah 43, Jeremiah 46, Acts 18. This is how Matthew closes his gospel with Jesus saying, I am with you always. When God was giving his covenant in Leviticus 26, he said, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. You see, in Matthew, right here, as we see Emmanuel, we find the deepest meaning of this covenant being fulfilled that we can have a personal relationship with Jesus, that he is with us. Do not be afraid is all about presence. It's all about the presence of God. And it's a message we need to hear again and again and again. Because we're afraid of a lot of things, aren't we? What'd you write down on that paper? What are the things that make you worry? As you look at that, why does that cause you Fear. I told you you wouldn't have to share yours. I'll share mine. Mine is three words. Am I enough? That's what I worry about often. Am I enough as a husband? Am I enough as a father? Am I enough when I come to work? Am I enough when I, when I minister to people? Am I enough? Am I good enough? I don't know what yours is. Maybe it's being vulnerable. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's safety and security. Maybe you wrote finances or your job that you want to have enough or just enough or just more than your neighbors. Maybe you wrote the future. And it's not so much I think that we worry about the future, it's that we worry about our control over the future, right? What things will we be able to control? Maybe you were just simple and put snakes right? That's biblical. Maybe you put flying monkeys. It's not biblical, but still scary. When we are afraid, 
when we worry, we need to be reminded of the presence because we long for that presence. We want that presence. We want to know someone is with us. Several years ago, I took my daughters to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. It was awesome. And we rode the Tower of Terror, and they were not terrified. And we rode California screaming, and they screamed for joy. But there was one ride that truly frightened them, that scared them to death. It was this horrific ride right here. It's the giant, it's called Mickey's Fun Wheel. After we got off, my girls called it Mickey's Screaming Wheel of Terror. Because that was our experience with this ride, okay? And this next picture shows a little bit of why. Some of the uh, gondolas are fixed, but some of them move on these, uh, these slides. And so it, you get to the end as it turns and you kick out, swing out like that. And the first time that happened, my kids just screamed. They were frightened. I have the scars to prove it, people. <laughs> my wife and I are sitting there and, and the girls are just like, stuck to us, clinging to us, screaming, this is horrible, get us off. There's a crack right there by the door. The crack's like this big. I'm like, you're not gonna fit out, look. (laughs) I can't even stuff you out of there. They were so frightened, but when they were frightened, they didn't push away from us. When they were frightened, they wanted us. They wanted to be close. They wanted to know they were next to something. I mean, honestly, as if we could have done anything anyway. Like, if the ride's going, we're all going with it. But in their mind, I gotta be close. I gotta know you're right next to me. I have to see if my fingernails can get inside of your skin. That's where they were. Because we long for that presence. And that's the message that we're given. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. There's examples all throughout scripture. Let me give you just a few. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out the disciples. It's a great moment. He's sending them out to do ministry on their own. But in verse 17, he says, beware, for you will be handed over to the courts. You'll be flogged. You'll be whipped in the synagogues, which is an interesting way of doing church, isn't it? We do not do that here, I assure you. He also says, you'll be arrested People will hate you. You'll be persecuted. And then he says, do not be afraid. Verse later, he says, do not be afraid. A couple verses later, he says, do not be afraid. Now, those are not irrational fears, right? Being whipped at church, being hated, being persecuted. Those aren't irrational fears. Those are fears. But he's saying, he's saying this. It's not, do not be afraid because nothing bad will happen to you. He's saying, do not be afraid when bad things happen to you because I am with you. He said, don't worry about that. Holy Spirit's gonna give you words. I'm gonna go with you. Do not be afraid. In Mark chapter four, there's a story. Jesus has just finished this season of ministry that is just stressful and he's spent until he and his disciples get on a boat and they get out on the lake and Jesus is so tired that he just falls asleep. He's out. Now, Peter's telling this story. He tells it to Mark who writes it down. Peter's a fisherman. He's used to being out on the water. And when he tells it, it's horrifying. Waves are coming up over the boat and it's swamping the boat. And they go to Jesus and they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're going to drown? Don't you care? How often have we said that phrase? 
How often have we cried out to God, don't you care? Don't you care that I'm going through this? Don't you care that this sickness is in my family? Don't you care that I lost my job? Don't you care about everything that's going on in the world? Don't you care? And Jesus' response is, why are you afraid? Why is it that you're afraid? And they're like, well, if you haven't noticed, they're with Jesus. Jesus calms the storm. And it says, uh, literally it says, they feared a great fear, which the fear was of Jesus, not of the waves anymore. Jesus said, I'm here. Have faith. The, The boat's not going down with me on it. Jesus isn't gonna drown. And so amidst that, the thought is, okay, I just, if I stick with him, we're gonna make it somehow, right? David in the Old Testament, how did he deal with this? You see, David had all kinds of awful things happen to him in his life, but he also, in Psalm 27, begins manufacturing, even saying, like, what if these horrible things happen? He says, when evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack, but he also says, even if a mighty army surrounds me, even if I'm attacked, I will remain confident. He's creating these scenarios. He says in verse 10, even if my father and mother abandon me, maybe that's the worst thing he could think of, even if all that happens, the Lord will hold me close. I think oftentimes in our society, we're told to visualize a positive future and stay focused on that. And that'll help you to deal with anxiety. But David is doing the exact opposite. Why? He's doing the exact opposite so that he has a strategy that stands up to the worst imaginable things that can happen. He's created these scenarios of the worst of it. And he says, even if that happens, God will hold me close. And just a little FYI, the worst thing imaginable, worst case scenario in the history of the world has already happened. The creator of the universe sent his son for us to show his love and we killed him. And God used that for his glory and our salvation. And he continues to use situations for his glory and for our good. And so he says, do not be afraid. I am with you. Let's talk for just a moment about where that anxiety comes from, where that worry comes from. I was reading a book uh, this past week by Tim Keller, and in the book he has this quote, my fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are my greatest joys. He's saying, the reason that worry rises up in me, the reason that I have anxiety is because the things that I place most joy in can be vulnerable. If, If it's finances, if you say, yeah, I just put a lot of joy in my finances, I'm just happy with that and it's vulnerable, the recession hits or you make a bad investment, then anxiety rises up in you. Augustine, he's a Christian theologian from around 400 AD. He wrote about this very thing. He he said, here's where anxiety comes from, that all of us have good things in our lives. All of us have things that, that we desire, things that we want. These things can be good things. He says, parents and children are good things. A career is a good thing. Romance is a good thing. All sorts of good things that we long for, and that's fine. The problem comes, anxiety comes, when those good things 
become the one thing. When the things that are good to have become the things that we have to have, when something which is finite becomes confused with the infinite, then anxiety will spring up. He says that uh, anxiety is a very, very helpful thing because it tells you a lot about yourself because you can always follow your worries to the things which enslave you. You can follow your worries to your false gods. He says even anxiety is the sign of the collapse of a false god. And as you look at that, what do you trace that to, that worry that you wrote down? You know, if I say mine was am I enough, am I enough means I care what people think about me. I care what people think about me because I'm prideful, right? Maybe you put finances and you said finances is important to me because I just want to take care of the people around me. And maybe at the root of that is this trust that God will not take care of me and the people around me. And so worry rises up when these false gods begin to collapse. Why? Because all of these things can be shaken. They can all be moved. They can all be compromised. When we take those good things and we make them the one thing, when we build our lives around them. So what's the solution? How do we live life not afraid, if that's even possible? I want to ask ourselves two questions in closing here. First one is this. Is God at the center of my life? It's just a a thinking about what is it at the center of your life? If you looked at that piece of paper, would you say, yeah, this really is at the center of my life, or at least the root of this is at the center of my life? You see, we need something at our core. We need something at the center which is immovable. And God is the only thing that cannot be shaken, that cannot be moved, that cannot be got, that cannot be compromised. It's only God. And the only time that we are truly safe and the times that we begin to live fearless lives are when God is at the center, when God is the thing that we want most of all. And so I would say, yeah, follow your worries to your false gods and give them up. Find out what the root of that worry is and give it up. In Psalm 27, when David is, is manufacturing these worst case scenarios, he says this, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Does David want to live at church? No. He doesn't want to move his bed into the sanctuary. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this, I don't want to know you distantly, God. I don't want to just obey you in a general way. I don't want to have a, a general inspirational belief in you. I want to know you personally, and I want to know you intimately. That's what he's saying. God, I want you to be at the center of everything. If I could just dwell with you all of the time, that's what I want. God, I want you to be the center. The second question I would ask is this. What would I do today if I was absolutely confident God was with me? How does that change the way we live? When we understand, do not be afraid, for I am with you. What decisions do we make? What lifestyle changes do we make? What advances do we make? 
I love this story of Joseph. I love this dream because I love his response to this dream. Verse 24, after this incredible scenario plays out before him, your wife's pregnant. Sure, it's by the Holy Spirit. Sure, it's gonna be God's son. Go get him, right? All of this crazy stuff, but once he finds out that God is in it, once he finds out that God is with him, it says, when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. Once he knew it was from God, once he knew God was present in his world, he was going for it. You see, we're not guaranteed pain-free lives. We're not guaranteed to get everything that we want to get, but we are told that God will be with us and that nothing can separate us from him. I wanna close with Romans 8, familiar passage. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death or we lost our job or we have prodigal children or an unfaithful spouse or the Democrats are in control or the Republicans are in control? Does it mean God doesn't love us anymore? Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for that truth. We thank you that you are with us. You are Emmanuel. And God, I just pray that you would continue to teach us how to live that way. God, I confess that there are worries, there are things that cause anxiety in all of us. And I pray that you would teach us the root of those things and that we would surrender them to you. Continue to surprise us this Christmas season with your presence. In your name, Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.